welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and today's Jill's pin is an indictment. Um, but it's an indictment for Mar-a-Lago, and uh, I'm waiting to have to order a new pin for interfering with our election. Well, Donald Trump came close to unraveling our democracy throughout his presidency. He chipped away at our basic values, norms, laws, and constitution. Of course, the events on January 6th and all his efforts before and since to prevent the peaceful transfer of power and to overturn the election results are dramatic examples of his attack on democracy. And while his efforts ultimately failed, there are no signs that Donald Trump will change his behavior in 2024 if he's re-elected. In fact, he only seems more committed to becoming a dictator based on his comments a few days ago at Turning Point USA's conference. It's distressing that despite all this, he is still the front runner in the Republican field to be the president by a long run, and that most of the others in the field are no different than Trump. What must every American know about what happened during the Trump administration and presidency, and what might happen if he or one of the other Trump-like candidates win in 2024? And today we are joined by someone who was inside the Trump administration as a senior ranking official and started warning us even while he was still in the administration about the danger to democracy that Trump posed. Um, And that happened then, but it's still happening now. He is, of course, Miles Taylor, the author of the anonymous op-ed that was one of the first people inside the administration to actually speak out against what was happening in the White House. Um, He continues warning us in his new book, which is titled, well, his first book was titled Warning. And now again, he has a second book titled Blowback about what another Trump could mean, either the real Trump or a Trump wannabe, someone who's emulating him. Uh, Blowback, by the way, came out today. It's just newly released. I have the pleasure of having read one of the advanced copies. So I'm, I've already read the book and we'll be talking about that, Victor and I, with Miles. And Miles, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have you back. It's a couple of years since you were here for your first book. Well, Jill and Victor, it's great to be with you. I wish it was to talk about something a little bit happier. Uh, you know, I, if if Donald Trump would go away, I could go write a fiction book that I really want to write. But, but this is what we have to be talking about right now, because I do genuinely think the survival of our democracy, not just the health of our democracy, its survival is on the line at the moment. Well, Victor, and I certainly agree with you. Uh, we couldn't agree with you more. Uh, let's start off with your book. I mean, tell us how this book is different from your first book, because at its core, it seems to touch on many of the same disturbing aspects of the Trump administration and the threat that Trump poses for democracy. Well, what I realized, Victor, is no one had yet painted us a clear-eyed portrait of what would happen in a second Trump term. I mean, we just had a bombshell New York Times story this week that scratches the surface of what Trump would want to do in a second term. This book is the in-depth play-by-play of everything Trump and his allies want to do to the federal government and each of democracy's guardrails if they get reelected. And I felt like that was really crucial for people to understand before we go into another presidential nominating process. I mean, the reason I'd written a warning was to say, trust me, this man is dangerously unhinged, uh, we now all know that, but at the time I said, you cannot reelect him. I never, ever in my wildest dreams expected that we would be here with a twice impeached, twice indicted, you know, ex-president that would be the front runner again for the GOP nomination. So I wrote this book to say, look, let's take the hyperbole out of it. Let me paint a very vivid picture of exactly what they're going to do if we make this choice to put the MAGA movement back in the White House. And I'll tell you, it was it was disturbing even to me. I thought I'd seen it all. I thought I knew the dangerous things they were going to do. But I spent two years interviewing dozens and dozens of ex-Trump officials from almost every department and agency, senior Republicans on Capitol Hill, to say, what did Trump want to do the first time that he wasn't able to? Uh, and this book lays that all out in detail. And, and I'll say, I mean, it's it's it was pretty chilling stuff. Well, it'll be very interesting. We will go through some of those revelations and the people that you interviewed, but I want to start with um, the title blowback. 
How did you land on that and what does it mean? Well, uh, I, as I've hinted, I am very regrettably in the world of politics right now. I never wanted to be in politics. I, I really loathe being in politics. I very much enjoy being on this podcast with Jill and Victor, but I hate being in politics. I wanted to be in public policy. And I went into government after 9-11, not to work on the electoral politics side, but to work in national security and to protect the country from external threats. It just so happened that during the Trump years, the biggest national security threat to the country was an internal one. And it wasn't just me that believed that. I mean, Trump's own lieutenants, his chief of staff, John Kelly, told me on, on my first day on the job, you are swearing an oath to protect the Constitution against enemies foreign and domestic. And he emphasized the word domestic. And we both knew what he was talking about when he said that. So I used the word blowback because it's a word we use in the national security community to describe the unintended consequences of our actions when we fail to see around corners. So you do a military operation that's poorly planned. Uh, if there's fatalities, that's the blowback of a poorly planned operation. I'm using that term to describe what might happen to our democracy if we make the mistake of putting someone from the MAGA movement, whether it's Trump or a copycat, back in the White House. And this book is all about that potential blowback and it's severe. I mean, I genuinely think each of the most foundational guardrails of our democracy would be at risk. So you provide many anecdotes throughout your book, and, and you mentioned a little bit of the process of doing so, collaborating with other people, um, which we'll get into very soon. But first, describe more of that process for you and, and how you remember those anecdotes. Did you take con contemporaneous notes? I mean, talk about that process of how you remember those stories and, and worked with other people to provide this really chilling portrayal of what this Trump presidency might look like again. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it started during the administration. And you've got to remind me, Victor and Jill, are we R-rated PG-13 or PG on the podcast? <laughs> for Victor, it's definitely PG. But for me, it's R. Jill, I just okay. one, so I can, I can handle a little bit of uh, there okay. <laughs> Victor's finally of age. Um, you know, there's an anecdote that we were briefly talking about in, in the green room, and I was glad you reminded me of it, Jill, because this project, in a sense, really started during the Trump administration. I mean, there was a moment, one of the craziest meetings I ever sat in with Donald Trump, we're in the Oval Office, he's spouting off insane, illegal, immoral, unethical things he wants to do, and he looks at me, and I'm taking notes, and look, when you're in a meeting with the President of the United States, I don't care what party they're from, you take notes, because you need to have a a faithful recollection of what the president said, especially if you're going to go use the levers of power to execute that action. You want to remember what the president of the United States said. And Trump looked at me and he said, are you fucking taking notes? Stop fucking taking notes. And I closed my notebook. But at that point, Donald Trump was two years too late because I'd been taking notes about every interaction that we had with him. And after what I witnessed, I made the determination that I was going to go use those notes to go tell the public about who this man was and what he really wanted to do. So the process of this book started with my firsthand experiences in the administration of the policies that were thwarted, but which Trump desperately wanted to pursue if he won a second term in office. But Victor, it had to go beyond that because I didn't want people just to hear from me this time. I mean, a warning by anonymous was just from me. I wanted them, even if they didn't believe Miles Taylor, I wanted them to hear from the cabinet secretaries, all the way down to the staff assistants in the West Wing, to the members of Congress who also forecast, uh, who also have the same dire forecast about a second term of Trump. So I did dozens and dozens of interviews, probably a hundred different interviews with senior officials, took notes, contemporaneous documentation, text messages, documents, et cetera, uh, a whole plethora of material to try to meticulously catalog what will happen if we do this again to ourselves. And, you know, the, the net result is that you hear from people in their own voices. The irony, of course, though, is there are people who are elected Republicans today who spoke to me for this book and said, will you protect my name and keep me anonymous in the book? And that's frustrating to no end. First, of course, it's silly because I was anonymous once. And now these people who criticized me for being anonymous are asking me to protect their identities. But two, it's more frustrating because these are the people we need to speak out in their own names, is the elected leaders who can actually shift the GOP 
away from MAGAism. So, I mean, as we speak, as we're doing this podcast, I'm encouraging some of those people who asked me to withhold their names in this text to come forward on their own terms. It's my job as a writer to respect their wishes in the handful of cases people wanted their identities to remain protected. Uh, but this country and our democracy depends on them speaking out in their own name. So it's, it's clear that you spoke to a lot of people from the writing here. And it's also clear that um, you had a lot of examples that you portray here where you set out various activities and conversations that happened with Trump and that were either witnessed by you or by other people. And, but what I would like you to do for our audience is if you can, because it's just example after example after example, is there a unifying theme? Is there a single thread that you could say unifies all of these examples? And I also want to point out that you make it very clear that you're talking about the danger of Trump being reelected or of a Trump light, someone who emulates him being elected. Yeah, I would say the unifying theme, and I'm surprised that, in fact, no, let me back up. I shouldn't be surprised that I'm saying this, but the unifying theme is revenge. And I thought I wasn't going to be able to speak that bluntly in going out and talking about this book. I mean, the people who I spoke to for this again and again, whether it was the Defense Department, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Education, Capitol Hill said a second Trump term or that of a copycat from the MAGA movement will be all about political revenge. And I thought to myself, Jill, when I go out there, people just aren't going to believe that, That's, that, that so many people think that the goal of governing will be revenge. And then just two months ago, Donald Trump went out there publicly and made very clear what the theme of his reelection effort will, will be. He said, I am your retribution. And since then, he's made clear, very, very crystal clear, that their intent will be to weaponize the levers of power to exact retribution against the foes of the MAGA movement and to further their political control. It sounds like something from a B-movie. It sounds like something from a foreign dictatorship, but this is the United States of America. So that's the unifying theme is, you know, the next Trump administration wanting to use those departments and agencies for revenge. I'll give you a couple of quick examples is I heard from a lot of intelligence officials who Trump appointed himself that they're worried in a second term, he will use the spy powers of the intelligence community to spy on political rivals. Now, we're talking about the illegal use of wiretapping authorities that the U.S. government has to listen in on political rivals. Uh, and I had a number of people talk to me about that concern. I had folks talk about the potential weaponization of emergency aid. And this is something that I saw during the mm -hmm. Trump administration again and again. He wanted to stop uh, assistance to wildfire victims or hurricane victims or tornado victims if they were in blue states because he wanted to punish blue states that didn't support him. In a second term, aides believe he will follow through on those demands. So it went on and on and on, but I'll tell you the one that was most shocking to me, genuinely, I had no idea, was what he intends to do to the Department of Veterans Affairs. And I actually didn't think I was going to hear much of anything from the senior officials that ran Veterans Affairs during the Trump administration, but they told me that for years, Trump tried to take, in their words, a wrecking ball to the Department of Veterans Affairs and destroy the social safety net for Americans' retired troops. You would ask yourself, what president in his right mind would want to do that? It's because Donald Trump found out it was the second biggest department in terms of budget, and he wanted to take the $250 billion and spend it somewhere else. And the words of one official who was the number two at the Department of Veterans Affairs, Trump thought veterans were lazy malingerers and he wouldn't care about throwing them out on the street. That was disgusting to me, especially because we depend on the commander in chief to protect our troops and to protect our fallen soldiers and their families. Yeah. Of course, it's quite obvious that he would have no idea about what service to the country means, military or otherwise. And I, I, But as a follow-up to what you just said, um, I was especially concerned when I heard his remarks at Turning Point Conference, in which he said, basically, I want to have total and complete control. I want all the power vested in the executive branch, not even the executive branch, in the president. And um, then I heard 
Michael Beschloss on the Joy Reid show talking about his becoming a dictator. And some of the examples you point out really support that he would try that in a much more meaningful, robust way. Is that how you feel too? I do. And, and if, if it weren't for a renowned nonpartisan historian like Michael, uh, I would feel like it was a political talking point coming out of my mouth. But he and I are seeing the same thing. And this was nowhere was this more evident than when I was talking to people from the Defense Department who served under Trump. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, Mark Esper, who was defense secretary at the end of the mm -hmm. Trump administration. Esper talked about his worry of Trump pulling back all U.S. forces overseas, which not only would leave us vulnerable, but would also lead him to do the thing he really wanted to do, which was redeploy U.S. forces here domestically. Again, I can't believe I'm saying that, but but official after official talk to me about Trump's plans to use things like the Insurrection Act to deploy U.S. troops on U.S. soil uh, and for political purposes. I mean, we had one guy, Mark Harvey, who was a senior official on the National Security Council uh, under Trump, tell me that he thinks in a second term they'll go deploy domestic security forces to intimidate voters at the polls and, and to show that the state security forces are under the control of Donald Trump and people better vote a certain way. And we saw versions of this in Arizona in the last election, these ballot watchers who were there just to scare yeah. voters by showing up with weapons and being there, they anticipated it would be enough to scare away certain types of voters that might vote for Democrats from the polls. I've now got Trump administration ex-officials telling me they want to put that on steroids using federal security forces. That's alarming. Layer on to that the fact that a number of people uh, confirmed to me plans to try to create an independent mercenary force. So we just witnessed what happened in Russia where Putin's unaccountable Wagner forces, you know, have been, you know, roving the country, you know, in Ukraine, potentially toppling the Kremlin. Uh, Trump was jealous of that. He wanted his own Wagner group, an independent military force that was accountable to him. Now, I witnessed part of this firsthand at the beginning of the Trump administration when we were talking about Afghanistan with the president is he wanted to create a mercenary force. He talked to Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, about it. We finally talked him out of it. And then I found out that after I left, that zombie policy idea came roaring back to life. And the National Security Council had to scramble to shut it down. Trump was desperate to create his own mercenary group. And that's what I think is going to be especially dangerous domestically next time. Not only will he try to use DHS forces and DOD forces for political purposes, he will try to create his own armed force. Um, and you can't make this stuff up. I mean, one of the top counterterrorism officials in the Trump administration told me in this book, quote, it would be a junior Gestapo if he did that. I mean, you know, this, you know, folks, this isn't, you know, me writing an op-ed and just sounding off. I mean, this was a, the person who said that is a man named Tom Warwick, lifetime public servant, you know, worked again in the Trump administration, was the lead for Homeland Security counterterrorism policy and fears a junior Gestapo in the next Trump administration. I would think that uh, Trump might fear what happened with Wagner, where he turned on Putin and came close to succeeding. So uh, he might be forewarned that it's not so great an idea to create your own uh, force. But, but isn't that pretty catastrophic, had... Jill, that we're at the point where we're talking about, well, dictator Trump 2.0 might create a mercenary force, but the silver yeah. lining is maybe that mercenary force will turn against him and overthrow him. I mean, we're, in, we're firmly into crazy town now. Uh, you know, if you would have replayed this conversation for any of us seven years ago, we would have said, oh, Victor and Jill and Miles have just lost their minds. Yeah. Uh, but this is generally the sentiment among ex-Trump administration officials that it will be uh, this bad. And I was just at a dinner last night with a whole range of these people, from Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, to Stephanie Grisham, Grisham who's Trump's you know communications director, Olivia Troy, who is in Mike Pence's office at the White House, and we were all sitting having this conversation. And uh, I, you know, I hope they're not mad at me for saying this, but uh, you know, we made a half joke about how the fact that every four years people uh, talk about moving out of the country if the other person gets elected. And this time we were having a very frank conversation about how 
we likely anticipated many of us at that dinner table, and there were others, uh, would be prosecuted uh, for having spoken out against the ex-president, uh, and that some people may need to consider relocating their families. I mean, these are real conversations happening. Again, yeah. none of those people I mentioned besides Michael, you know, Michael's a political person. He came up in politics. You know, the rest of our cohort there had been mostly on the public policy side. And there was a range of FBI officials there and, and other folks uh, worried about the enormous national security uh, and justice implications of a Trump 2.0. That is chilling in every sense. And, and you know, there's a lot of news about January 6th today, given um, this target letter sent to Trump. And and in this same vein of that he'll do anything to hold on to power, he'll do anything to gain control of power. How do you fear, how do you feel Trump will kind of act if he's given another chance? And will we see another resurgence in January 6th, even if he isn't elected? Kind of talk, talk to us about that side of things and, and whether or not we might see another attempted coup. Well, I'm glad you say, Victor, uh, what would happen, you know, even before he might be reelected? Because I think the concern here with Donald Trump is we've seen already concrete evidence of how he acts when he loses. So forget for a second the possibility of him being a second term president, which is genuinely terrifying. Um, even him losing is terrifying because we've seen that he does not go quietly. And I'm not Nostradamus, but this is something I was saying two years before Trump's reelection, which was that if he loses reelection, he will not go quietly or easily. And I said in my book, that's why he's seeding a narrative about who's being afoot and a civil war in the offing is he was preparing to contest that election. And I said in the book, it will end tragically. And it did on January 6th. But again, I'm not Nostradamus. This was very foreseeable based on what Trump was saying. And you have to take him seriously. You have to take his words seriously. And I learned this, a lot of us learned this the hard way after 9-11, is we didn't take the terrorists seriously. We didn't take Osama bin Laden's words seriously and his followers. And we misunderstood how they would approach their fight against the United States asymmetrically. Very similarly, a lot of people have underestimated Donald Trump. And when he talks about being a pseudo dictator, people say, yeah, but he's just saying that to rile up the base. He is not. We have to take him literally and seriously. And I do think based on what we've experienced, if he loses again, we may see January 6th on steroids because we now have a country since that time where the GOP base is more radicalized than it was before, demonstrably, the stats show it, and more armed than it was before. I think something like 9% of Americans bought a firearm during the pandemic. Uh, and as far as radicalization goes, we still have a majority of Republicans who believe those three big conspiracy theories, the big lie of the stolen election, QAnon and the Great Replacement Theory, uh, which wasn't the case several years ago. So we have a much more radicalized, much more angry Republican base that I worry will be receptive to his calls for violence if he does not win in the primary process. You're right, because they also now believe that violence is an appropriate political tool, and that makes it even more scary. But I, let's look at the existing... Um, one of the existing cases against him, which is for his mishandling of classified documents. And that happened, you know, after he left the White House. But in your book, you share some uh, examples about his carelessness with classified information while he was still in the White House. And obviously that presents a very serious risk to our national security. So talk about that more and what you saw. Well, Early in the administration, this was a concern. In fact, even before the administration, I was privy to it more than most folks uh, because I had been involved in efforts before Trump was elected to try to brief him on the threat from Russia. As a Republican that was working uh, in the House at the time when Paul Ryan was speaker, we were really worried that Donald Trump wasn't telling the truth about Russian interference in our democracy. And regardless of whether the Russians were trying to help him or Hillary Clinton, it didn't matter. A foreign nation state was trying to manipulate our election. And as one of the leading candidates, we felt he needed to go out and condemn it. And so we were part of briefings to then candidate Trump about the intervention. But I'll tell you, before some of those briefings, we worried about how much 
to share with him because it was unclear if he was just excited that the Russians were helping him or if he might be actively working with them, in which case you needed to be careful about the information you shared. Now, in Blowback, my book, one of the intelligence officials that was responsible for briefing Trump on the intelligence said they actually ran war games where uh, they, they prepared for the possibility that the intelligence they gave Trump might be leaked by him to other people. And in fact, Trump and Hillary Clinton received distinctly different intelligence briefings because of that concern. When Trump became president, his own top lieutenants felt the same way. And I'll never forget the day I got the phone call after Trump revealed a very, very sensitive uh, set of information to the Russians in the Oval Office. I got a phone call from Trump's Homeland Security Advisor who said this news is about to break and it's true. Uh, and, and that was genuinely terrifying to see not only him mishandle extremely sensitive information, but to give it to a foreign adversary in the Oval Office. You can't make that up. Um, you know, Jill, you referred to other incidents in the book. There was one time I was sitting with John Bolton, who was then National Security Advisor, in his office in the West Wing. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders burst in and said Donald Trump had just had a meeting with a group of reporters and he picked up a fistful of highly classified information and mm -hmm. waved it in front of them to brag about all of the great intelligence he was getting on a specific crisis that we, we were dealing with at the time. And I mean, Bolton's jaw almost hit the floor. Uh, and it was that sort of reality of a, an untethered toddler running around with really sensitive state secrets that his own team was worried about. But I want to go a step further because it's not just about Trump. Even if Trump is not the Republican nominee or the next president of the United States. His movement now believes, uh, one, that he's innocent of mishandling classified information, and two, has widespread disregard for the institutions in our government that are responsible for protecting state secrets, the intelligence community, and organizations like the FBI. I wanted to believe, and I was wrong in believing, that Trump was an aberration, and that if we only survived his presidency, the GOP would move on. But when it comes to classified information, you now have a Republican Party that's very vocal about wanting to replace intelligence leaders, put political operatives in at three-letter agencies, and to, in their words, cleanse and detonate the FBI. We are talking about a political party that is now staking out positions that will put our state secrets at risk, that will put Americans' lives at risk. Is there anything that might change that viewpoint among those people, or do you think all hope is lost? I don't think all hope is lost. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the Killers, and obviously their best song is Mr. Brightside, and I like to style myself as Mr. Brightside and try to be the optimist. Yeah. And I do think that I think our best hope right now is genuinely more people deciding as we go into this next election to speak up and say what they know is the truth. And that may sound very banal and difficult to do, but at the end of the day, I do think a majority of Americans recognize the danger of the moment that we are in, recognize that Trump is unfit for office and that we don't wanna do another four years like that. But the reason a lot of them aren't speaking out is fear. They're very, very afraid to be canceled by their tribe, especially on the far right. They are afraid, and I see this all the time at dinners and picnics and barbecues when I go talk to rational Republicans who otherwise would be saying something, but they know if they say something at that dinner and there's a MAGA person there, they are going to be eviscerated and they'd rather just be silent. The problem with that is that collective silence is exactly how we got a Donald Trump in the right. first place. And I have seen signs that people are more willing to speak out. I mean, again, I just mentioned you know, the dinner that I was at last night with Stephanie Grisham, you know, Stephanie was someone who just savaged me when I came out against Trump. She was press secretary and communications director. I turned against the president, savaged me. And I'm sure some of the death threats we got were as a result of her rhetoric. But you know what? When she came out and turned on Trump after January 6th, I was one of the first people to say, the water's warm, come on in. Why? Because we need to encourage people to speak up. It's never too late to do the right thing. And I think I am optimistic that we will see that 
uh, within the Republican Party. We will see more people speaking up. I just don't know if it will be in time. And that's why I'm really trying to encourage those sitting Republican leaders who know better. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy. I used to sit in meetings with McCarthy where he disparaged Trump. He needs to get out there and tell the truth. And we've seen little bits of it. We've seen him inch towards the line and potentially say out loud what he says in private to his staff, to his friends, to other members of Congress, Kevin, it's time to come tell the truth publicly. Uh, it'll be a weight off your shoulders. And by the way, you can save the country. Yeah, Boy, boy I don't see that happening at all, Miles, because we have the target letter was announced and every Republican is saying, including Kevin McCarthy and every candidate who's running against him, who would have some motivation to take advantage of this criminality, saying, well, this is politicizing the department and this is not illegal. It is a political witch hunt. It is something that maybe was wrong. Maybe he should have not sat around for 187 minutes, but that doesn't make it criminal. That's what I'm hearing. And I believe in the two-party system. I wish there were Republicans that we could debate on policy issues, on trickle-down economics, not on the facts. And Unfortunately, so far I have not, except for uh, Chris Christie, no one's really speaking out against him. Asa Hutchinson may be moving in that direction, but all the others are definitely Nikki Haley and DeSantis. They're nowhere near criticizing him and they're ignoring the facts and they're ignoring, ignoring the danger you're warning about, which is the danger to our democracy and the, the lies which continue to this day. And you talk in your book about a lot of things that he knew were wrong, but he did them anyway, and then lied about them to the public. And maybe that's worth fitting in here or something about that subject from your book. Well, and, and, and Jill, I'll, I'll amend my comments to say, I'm an optimist in that I believe we always have a choice to fix our actions, you know? Um, I blew the whistle on Trump from inside the administration, but I deeply regret that I didn't unmask myself sooner. And mm. because I realized when I unmasked myself in 2020 and campaigned against Trump, that it helped make it easier for other people to come forward. Um, and, you know, I had that ability to make that decision and I didn't, and I wish I had sooner. Similarly, our democracy, we have the ability, if we want, to unmask ourselves and this collective anonymity, especially within the Republican Party, where they know on the inside it's wrong, but they're scared to say it, and so they stick with the tribe. There's a choice there. They can make a choice. Now, I'm also a realist in addition to being an optimist, and I think if you ask me today what will happen in 2024, I genuinely think that the odds are that Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. I think he will win the GOP nomination. And I'm worried that if Republicans don't campaign in a coalition with the Democrats, concerned Republicans, like they did last time, that Biden could be defeated by Trump. And I think it's really crucial for those rational Republicans who are really worried about what they're seeing to go ally with the other side. That coalition is the only way we defeat him. But, you know, I, I use this number a lot because it's just baffling to me, which is that Donald Trump had a 9% chance, according to the betting markets, of winning the presidency in 2016 on the eve of actually winning the presidency. Now the betting markets give him on some days north of 30% of being the next president of the United States, three times the odds he had just before he won the presidency. Now the betting markets don't have a crystal ball but they are an indicator of how the public is feeling. And the public is feeling, despite two impeachments and two indictments, that Donald Trump still might be a satisfactory president of the United States. So I do think we need to worry. This is the five alarm fire for our democracy. And, you know, I, I know that you are also against um, third parties, such as the No Labels Party, um, putting their candidates on the ballot. Talk more about that and what you think that threat might look like. Because, it, I mean, I agree with you totally that we really only have one choice right now, which is Joe Biden. But you seem to have some people kind of in the middle who seem to think that a third party might benefit. But I, I don't think that's going to be beneficial. What about you? Well, look, in the big picture, I actually love third parties and fourth parties and fifth parties. In the big picture, let's say the long time horizon of democracy, I think we 
desperately need more competition and more choice on both sides of the aisle and new parties. I can't think of a marketplace where more competition and more choice is a bad thing. And I think that's why people are really frustrated with our democracy is they think the extremes are making, you know, the extreme 10% is making the decisions for the other 90% of us, which is the case in the primaries. I mean, 10% of voters participate in the primaries and they choose the people who are going to be on the ballot for the rest of us. That's frustrating. That said, your point, Victor, it's about 2024. And I do have a lot of worry about a third party presidential ballot line in 2024 and what that might mean. Now, I'm not totally averse to the possibility that there's some other coalition that could emerge that joins with Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, but boy, they better pull the hell out of that uh, scenario. And I would hope that they go talk uh, to the president ahead of time and say, look, we're going to put our democracy ahead of any partisan ambitions any of us have. How can we work together to defeat this guy? And I know Nancy Jacobson, who runs No Label, uh, and I know a lot of the people over there. And I, I don't know this to be true, but I really hope that they are having conversations with the White House because there's there's a false equivalence in saying Biden is just as bad as Donald Trump. No, one of them wants to destroy the fabric of our republic. And in blowback, I document step by step how they want to actually destroy our republic. So anyone who's you know, saying that they want to just add more competition and choice to the 2024 election, I hope values our democracy more and is having conversations with the White House about how they could team up to make that happen. That is what no labels should be doing right now. And I would like to think somewhere they've opened a quiet communications channel into the West Wing to say, maybe we'll stand down if we can work together to build a unity government. That's the type of thing that should happen rather than leaving our democracy to a coin flip. I love your optimism. I doubt that that's what um, <laughs> the No Labels right. Party is interested I'm in. I'm kind of hinting that they should do that in this podcast. Yeah. So maybe we should start to make that suggestion more publicly is yeah. uh, that they've got a patriotic here, here. duty to have that conversation. So Nancy Jacobson, if you can hear me, thing. please have a conversation with the White House before we detonate America's yeah. Republic. And, and I hope Nancy will listen. Please think about what Miles said in the beginning of that conversation, which was, it is a false equivalency yeah. to say that Biden is the same as Trump. Trump is out to defy democracy, to destroy it, to become a dictator. Um, I, I, you mentioned your book again, and I want to ask one uh, on a different topic. You talk very openly about some very personal uh, struggles that you were having. And... Um, I know I had a very personal uh, disclosures in my book, and I was discouraged by a lot of people who knew me saying, oh, don't do it, don't do it. But I felt that I had to be honest. And also I felt that it might help other people deal with similar things. Talk about your revelations and what led you to do it and what you hope to accomplish and how you learned to handle the problems you were having. Well, um, it wasn't something I'm sure like you, Jill, that I was planning on doing. And you wouldn't tell from the title of this book or the subtitle that it ends up actually being a much more emotional and personal book. Um, right. It's two things. This is a forecast about the dangers of a second Trump administration, but it's also a story about how in my own life, letting my guardrails down led me very close to self-destruction. Uh, and it was a, a great editor that I had that that noted the symbolism there and the fact that my journey down the rabbit hole of letting my guardrails down, which led me very close to, you know, led me into the land of suicidal ideation, was not terribly different from what we're doing as a country. By letting our guardrails down, we risk, we run the risk of civic suicidal ideation, the self-destruction of our democracy. Um, you know, specifically, I'm not trying to be coy. I mean, specifically, I really wrestled with the pressure, the, the, the tension between two identities. I mean, when I was still anonymous, before I unmasked myself, there were people just dying for me to come forward because they thought I was this resistance superhero from within the administration. And there was a cohort of people who thought I was an evil, treasonous villain trying to launch a coup inside the administration. And in my view, neither of those characters 
were correct. But I knew that when I unmasked myself, I would have to grapple with both of those camps. And so I was afraid. And I stayed anonymous longer than I would have liked to. It led me to drink. It led me to abuse drugs. And I wound up in an emergency room after an overdose, really having to reckon with this hypocrisy that here I was trying to sound the alarm about a reckless president, and I couldn't even take care of myself. And now I'm happy to report that, you know, after rock bottom, after losing a house and a job and a marriage and personal security, um, you know, I'm 18 months sober. I'm now married to the love of my life. And, uh, you know, I feel like I can be back in this fight again. But but I did see, you know, as I started to have conversations with friends and family about it, like you, Jill, I saw why it might be useful to tell that story, because there's other people who've ended up in those circumstances and are afraid to talk about it or maybe afraid to tell friends or family that they're in that dark place. But also, I'm a cautionary tale. I'm a cautionary tale of what happens when you bottle up the truth. When you bottle up the truth, it has blowback. And it's the same for our country right now. If we bottle up the truth about this internal menace, Donald Trump, the MAGA movement, it will mean danger for the health of our democracy and potentially uh, its demise. And I learned that in a journey that was long and fraught and painful, but I felt like this was the opportunity to share that with other people. That sounds like a good place to end this conversation because um, that is the warning for everybody. And I hope people will take it seriously and thank you for your honesty and your candor in telling the story and in documenting how many other people witnessed firsthand the danger that Donald Trump and the MAGA movement pose to America. Well, Jill and Victor, thank you so much for what you do. And for those who are watching on video, I promise that the book is not that big. Yeah. That is a foam board. Uh, it is that size. And that's so fine. it will fit in a backpack. Yeah. It's not a coffee table book. Uh, I'm so grateful to you both for what you do to protect our country. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So thank much. you, Miles. Well, Jill, that was such a chilling episode about just what another Trump presidency might entail. And just those stories. I hope everyone hears what Miles said and will tell their friends about, you know, what might happen because we all have to be alarmed um, by what's going on. And you know, there's a lot of news today, which I which I want to discuss with you because um, for those of us who may have felt like justice um, was happening too slow, it seems like the walls are really closing in on Trump now. Um, Jack Smith, apparently, according to Donald Trump, I don't think there's been any confirmation um, from inside Jack Smith's prosecution team. But um, so far, according to Trump on Truth Social, there's been a target letter sent to Donald Trump, giving him only four days to respond. And so I'm wondering um, what you think of the target letter um, or the news of the target letter and whether or not we might see an indictment soon. Well, there has been confirmation from people who are close to Donald Trump. They have confirmed that he did get a target letter. Um, and just to make sure that everybody understands, that is a letter that prosecutors send way at the end of a, an investigation when they're about to take action. And it gives warning to a person who might have otherwise thought he was a witness, that he is not a witness, that he is the target of the investigation, and gives that target an opportunity to come before the grand jury and tell their side of the story in the hopes that they can explain away things that might otherwise look criminal and convince the grand jury that they should not return an indictment against that person. Um, in this case, the four days is a reasonable amount of time because there was no shortage of information that this investigation was ongoing. And um, his lawyers have already you know, talk to the prosecutors on other issues and know full well that they can talk to them on his behalf as well. So I would say that I'm expecting an indictment because I do not, one, I don't expect him to appear before the grand jury because his lawyers will not let him yeah. and should not let him. Yeah. And that secondly, that that means that the grand jury is probably ready to have a recommendation from the prosecutor about indictment in five days. Hmm. So I'm expecting very soon 
Friday, Monday, I'm not sure, but I would say very soon we can expect to see. And I think it's interesting because the press is now renaming this. We're no longer calling it the January 6th case because it's so much more than the events of January 6th. It is the fake electors. It is the pressure on Pence. It's the pressure on state legislators. It's the Georgia uh, phone call. It's all of the things that were done to overturn the results of a free and fair election, all of the efforts that were made to interfere with Congress's duty to confirm the vote, all of the things that were done to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, which is the hallmark of our democracy. So we are now calling it a broader term, something like the interference with the peaceful transfer of yeah. power. And I, and I think that's a really apt term, but you know, we were talking about some of the political um, responses to this, particularly from Republicans. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I saw something right before we joined the show where she said it's not it's not illegal to overturn, to try to overturn an election. I mean, you have Republicans now finding any excuse they can for Donald Trump's behavior. And we all have to remember, I mean, Kevin McCarthy yeah. said after the January 6th insurrection that what Donald Trump did was not good. I mean, that he bears responsibility for what happened on January 6th, but now he's somehow dismissing Trump's uh, actions on that right. and now saying that, you know, this is all Biden's Department of Justice going after Donald Trump and that Donald Trump is such a victim here. And it's just really, really sad and I think pathetic to see. And you now have Donald Trump trying to make his defense through posting on his truth right. social. Right. He said, I absolutely definitely believed that I had won the election, yeah. which is, of course, contrary to all of the evidence that we have where he was told repeatedly that he had lost the election fair and square, that there was no fraud in the election and that he had fewer votes. Right. He, he was told that by the ninjas. He hired the cyber ninjas to do the investigation in Arizona. He was told that by 60 cases that he, his lawyers brought in federal court. He was told that by his attorney general, by his chief of staff, by his campaign team. So, um, and there is, by the way, a rule that says that you cannot be willfully ignorant of the facts. So it's one thing for him to say, I believed that I won the election. It's another thing to prove that when he had all of those evidences brought to him by credible sources saying that he had lost and that there was no fraud. And so you cannot be willfully ignorant and use that as a defense to the intent that must be shown for your actions. That does not rebut the intent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will keep a close eye on what happens in this case. Um, But let's end on maybe a happier note, which is um, there was a great piece in the Atlantic, not in the Atlantic, in Axios um, the other day that talked about um, how friendships really know no age. Um, They talked about the value of intergenerational um, bonds that come with a lot of health benefits and that make people happier. And I have one stat in front of me right here, which says um, some 37% of Americans say they have a friend who is at least 15 years younger or older than they are. And those same people report saying that uh, they feel, or older people say that younger pals inspire them, give them a new perspective and act as role models. Um, Oh, sorry, that's younger people about older people. And then older folks with younger friends say that those friends boost their energy, make them feel valued and keep them on, uh, keep them up on trends. Um, I'm wondering, because we are in an intergenerational friendship, (laughs) um, what you think of of that and just, I mean, I I, I can just say, I mean, the, the older friends I have just as an organizer, I sometimes have to talk with a lot of older voters. And I mean, they are so much fun. And I feel so great to have that sort of wisdom and experience in my life. And um, I I agree with that sentiment. Um, But what about you, Jill? Well, absolutely. I have friends that range from 21, (laughs) newly turned 21, um, into their 90s, and um, much closer to my age than 21. Uh, so my, my friendships definitely run the range. I find that uh, my best friends are at least 10 years younger and mm. they definitely keep me physically fit because we go on trips and we do hiking and I have to keep up with people who are at least 10 or 15 years younger. And I, and I do. And I think that helps. I think having you as a friend means that I get to 
know what's happening and what's current uh, in terms of things. And I get help with the internet and uh, social media because that's something you grew up with and I certainly didn't. Um, and older friends have wisdom that I can benefit from and also have shared some of the um, social stereotypes and other impediments that I faced in my life um, that hopefully your generation won't continue to face. But based on my speaking at colleges and law schools and young business professionals, some of those stereotypes still exist. Some of the discrimination still exists. And uh, we need the Equal Rights Amendment. I hope that your generation will understand how much we need that, why we need it. And I'm hoping that this newest round of attempts by the Democrats to get it to become um, part of the Constitution will prevail. I agree. And, you know, it's, it's slightly terrifying, actually, to know that you have friends who are faster than you, because I think you are really fast. <laughs> um, and, you know, when, when I saw you over um, on, on Friday, I mean, I was trying to catch up with you. So uh, <laughs> I cannot imagine what it feels like to catch up with your friends. But um, it really is, um, uh, I think, so important to have those intergenerational bonds. Um, I have a few friends who are younger than me, and I will say they also keep me up to date on trends. And it's just great to have those kind of wide range of friendships. And even in politics, I think those intergenerational coalitions and partnerships yeah. are just really, really important to know that, you know, we can learn from everyone. I can learn, you know, younger people can learn from older people and what they've experienced and those challenges. And um, it runs both ways. So um, I thought that was just a really special article and um, hopefully one that will give yeah, us- Yeah, we should post it in our show notes because yeah. it would be interesting for people to think about making sure that they reach out to other yes. people of, of different age groups and form those kinds of friendships. It is very important. It's been very enriching to my life. Yes. And actually, I mean, in that same piece, it said that all um, intergenerational friendships are actually becoming less and less common. Um, the the oh. It's, it's particularly pronounced um, for Gen Xers and boomers, but for millennials and Gen Zers, it's um, less than about, I think, 30%. And for Gen Xers and boomers, it's all around 40%. So um, I think that's an interesting trend. And so hopefully this will- So go out there and make a new friend if you're yes. listening to the show. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you everyone for watching this episode of iGen Politics. We hope um, you are as chilled as we are about what the future of a Trump presidency might entail. And you'll tune in next week for another episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us right here on youtube.com slash Politicon. Uh, be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can also watch us on Twitter every week now at both my and Jill's handles. So uh, watch us there or on YouTube, or uh, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts every Wednesday um, uh, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or really wherever you follow your podcast. So be sure to follow us there as well. Thanks everyone for watching. We will see you next week. Mm -hmm.